This podcast is a part of the Podmania Podcasting Network. Check out podmania.co.uk to check out more of our great podcasts, features, reviews, match ratings and previews spanning the crazy and diverse world of professional wrestling. What's up everybody? Welcome to another episode of Wrestling with Jonas. This is episode 125 and today is another retro pay-per-view review. We're going to be looking back to uh, 28 years ago, believe it or not, to WWF SummerSlam 92. Now, why you ask? Well, uh, I've got a special guest via Skype. I've got Rob from Podmania Wrestling Podcast. Uh, so, so first of all, um, Rob, good evening. Great to have you on the Wrestling with Jonas podcast. And I think that you were the one that approached me about uh, potentially doing a retro pay-per-view. Well, firstly, hi and welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. It's uh, I've been looking forward to this all week, uh, a chance to review one of the great pay-per-views and certainly one of the great matches. So, uh, yeah, like I said before to you when we were off air, uh, getting back and looking at all the wrestling history is something I really really enjoy so the chance to do this I'm, uh, I'm very excited John yeah so so I was kind of bouncing ideas back and forward with you as to what we to, to talk about on this week's episode and uh, I think I suggested maybe doing a, uh, a poll where we put three pay-per-views um, up for people's votes so, uh, uh, kind of a listener's choice you could say on uh, the Jono's Facebook page and uh, you came back to me with three pay-per-view options do you remember what those three were? Um, I I remember obviously this one because it won. Yeah. Um, I think uh, did I give you Survivor Series 1998? That was one of them. Yes. Now uh, another one was the WCW pay per view, wasn't it? If I'm not mistaken. <laughs> oh yes. Let's. Uh... <laughs> it was Halloween Havoc 98 you got it you got it so those were the three that we put up for uh, listener choice on the Wrestling with Jonas Facebook community page and uh, SummerSlam 92 won by a landslide um, so obviously there's uh, an appetite for, for you know WWF back in the day and uh, you know the, the weather's nice over here in the UK maybe it kind of sparked that uh, that thought of let, let's have a SummerSlam pay-per-view let's, uh, let's uh, kind of revisit that magical moment and of course, SummerSlam was held uh, at Wembley Stadium 28 years ago. And uh, as I've said many, many times on this podcast, I was actually there in attendance. Uh, 16-year-old Johnners uh, enjoying it with my dad and a couple of friends. Uh, we got the coach now from, from Oxford uh, to London. And uh, what a, a magical um, day it was. And uh, it was a beautiful day in London. I remember getting off the coach, walking up Wembley Way. There was all sorts of vendors selling merchandise and hot dogs and all sorts. So we had to buy a programme and a couple of T-shirts, of course, and then made it into to the stadium. And we were kind of up in the gods. Uh, the, the ring looked tiny from where we were. But uh, it was a magical, magical day. And uh, I'd say it, it's remembered by many as being a bit of a two-match card, you could say. The two main events, uh, uh, the Ultimate Warrior versus Randy Savage for the WWF uh, World Championship at the time and of course the Intercontinental Championship match uh, that the, the show is most fondly remembered for of course Brett the Hitman Hart versus the British Bulldog David Boy Smith. Now we're getting to those matches uh, throughout this podcast of course but uh, it was a magical magical time. Now as I said Rob you know I was there and I've seen it back many many times when it first came out on VHS 
I was there at uh, WH Smith's waiting for them to open so I could get my copy of SummerSlam 92 um, 28 years ago. And I've probably seen it back a hundred <laughs> times since then, especially with it being on the network uh, and uh, more recently, you know, watching it back um, over the last couple of days on the network. But um, you've got a slightly different perspective on it because um, although you were a, a, an 80s and a 90s child, I'm guessing, you hadn't actually seen SummerSlam 92 until this week in preparation for this episode. So give us a, a little bit of um, your, your thought process as to why you haven't seen SummerSlam 92 before this week. Then I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. Once I got into wrestling, um, it was always that pay-per-view and especially that main event of, of uh, Davy Boy versus Brett. It was always one of those. It was always put on a pedestal as the match. You know, it's the SummerSlam match. And I, I made the mistake of having a similar sort of feeling about WrestleMania 3. And obviously I watched that pay-per-view and aside from the Steamboat versus Savage match, which stands up brilliantly uh, to watching in the modern day, it's it's not a great pay-per-view at all. And it, it sort of tarnished my opinion of certain pay-per-views. And I didn't want to go back and watch this, you know, the, the big pay-per-view that everyone remembers from England, you know, the one that everyone sort of goes back to and says, well, look at SummerSlam 1992. Of course we should have pay-per-views in England. I just didn't want, want to go back and watch it and think, well, that was a bit crap. Um, and just, you know, be really, really disappointed. But, you know, what better time than to do it with someone who is actually there, who was actually there, and yeah. to offer their perspective. Me who watched it, I finished watching it this morning. So, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. But uh, before we get uh, headlong into SummerSlam 92, um, let's talk about your, your kind of exploits um, in podcast world and podcast land. Uh, because um, uh, if I haven't already mentioned, you are, you are from the Podmania Wrestling Podcaster. Uh, and and you, you've got a, kind of a, a team of, uh, of uh, podcasters, I think, is you and two others, isn't there, Robin? There is, yeah. Tell us a bit about Podmania and what you kind of um, bring to the masses, what you, what you have to offer through your podcasting. Um, so when when I first started, it was just after the Royal Rumble to, uh, 2016 uh, when I started the, the, the podcast. And it was me on my own uh, recording on my phone and then putting it on SoundCloud um, because yeah. I didn't know how to do podcasting. Um, and then progressively, it sort of built up. And then there's uh, Garth Jackson who joined me ooh, almost three years ago now. And then Chris who joined, um, I think it was two years ago this month, actually. I think he was telling me it's his anniversary soon. Um, and... We, I started just doing WWE and then I sort of fell out of love with WWE and started looking at other promotions, uh, got very, very heavily into New Japan and I now have a New Japan podcast called The Young Lion Cast, which I do with Chris. Um, and then I also um, got into stardom as well, uh, something completely different, which again, I really, really enjoy and I again do that on a monthly basis um, with Chris again. So those, those are the three main podcast of course yourself as well uh, the podmania podcast at the moment is centering on aw uh, we do a weekly review of dynamite and yeah basically just having a good time and it's not too scripted nothing like that it's just three guys having a laugh often over many drinks and just basically for lack of a better phrase shooting the shit on yeah. wrestling yeah, I love it. I love it. And of course, uh, you, you probably would have heard Rob's voice, uh, the the opening kind of 15 second uh, intro to every episode of Wrestling with Jonas, because of course, you are, you are the voice of Podmania, uh, Pro Wrestling Network, as you mentioned. But um, what, what kind of prompted you to, to, start, to uh, start a network then? Of course, the Wrestling with Jonas podcast is part of that network. You mentioned a couple of other podcasts. And uh, uh, what, what prompted you to start the network then, Rob? Um. <sighs> 
in all honesty, um, I listen to a lot of podcasts on the Voices of Wrestling Network and, and things like that and post-wrestling. And I wanted to do something that helped other podcasts and basically built up a collection, you know, different perspectives on different things. I just wanted to bring that together. And if I could, you know, help out other podcasts, you know, other podcasts help, you know, as well, you know, if that was to be a thing. I just yeah. wanted to basically have something to help other people, something to help other podcasts and, you know, just have a wrestling community. When, when you started, uh, when you, you fired up the network last week or, or this morning, whenever you saw it and, and put on the uh, WWF SummerSlam 92, you had that absolutely fantastic kind of opening video package to SummerSlam 92. It really captures the excitement of the fans waiting outside Wembley Stadium, waiting to go in and see the show itself. I especially enjoyed all the fans. You saw a few video clips of some of the fans dressed up as their favourite wrestlers. You had a couple that were dressed up as the Bushwhackers and Macho Man and the Ultimate Warrior <laughs> with all their face paints. Absolutely fantastic opening video. The, the bit that I really, really loved and uh, the, the bit that uh, me and my friends used to kind of not necessarily take mickey out of but kind of you know copy the phrase over and over was that when you've got the, the british bulldog fan and he goes the british bulldog's gonna win whether he wants to or not and i absolutely <laughs> cracked up with that it's absolutely fantastic because of course the british bulldog's gonna win he's gonna want to win of course but uh, it is it's, it's iconic to those that were around at the time and loved uh, the vhs version of SummerSlam. but uh, here it is the opening video package of summer those two so a fantastic kind of it really did capture the excitement of the british wrestling fans as well and no doubt if, if we were to hold another big pay-per-view sometime in the future um, if ever um, then uh, hopefully we'll have you know excited wrestling fans dressed up and kind of face painted and lots of cosplay of their favorite wrestlers uh, um, in the 2000s but um, Rob you know can't wait to get stuck into this I mean the, the broadcast itself opens with uh, Vince McMahon and Bobby Heenan on commentary um, and uh, they introduced us to SummerSlam 92 the brain was on top form as always during this uh, broadcast um, it took place on Saturday, August the 29th, 1992, as you said, Wembley Stadium, London, England. It aired in the States two days later on August the 31st, of course, and it was the first ever major WWF pay-per-view to take place outside of North America um, and Canada, of course. And uh, currently they consider it to be the fourth largest audience ever to attend a WWF slash WWE event uh, with uh, over 80,000 people. I think they got it uh, recorded at 80,350. Um, and uh, nowadays that's kind of just uh, edged out by WrestleMania 29 that had uh, 80,676. WrestleMania 3, as you mentioned earlier, Rob, that had over 93,000 people um, according to the record books. And then, of course, uh, uh, WrestleMania 32, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, 32, wasn't it? Uh, a few years ago uh, that was reported to have had over 100,000 people in attendance. So, um, I mean, you know, so I think... If you listen to the Dave Meltzers of this world and the various dirt sheet writers, SummerSlam 92 was, you know, officially um, the, the largest attended WWF pay-per-view of all time, even edging out uh, WrestleMania 3. They were saying that 93,000 was uh, heavily exaggerated. Have you heard similar stories at all about the attendance figure for SummerSlam? Because, you know, it, it does vary from, you know, uh, writer to writer, I suppose. It's it's a running joke, isn't it, about how the WWF inflate their numbers. Um, you know, it's it's every pay-per-view and there was the running joke about WrestleMania 36, were they going to inflate the numbers? Yeah. Um, but yeah. he, I think I think it's it's widely, widely said that it was over 80,000 fans, whether whether it was, you know, a couple of hundred fans inflated. I think you are looking at 
80,000 fans, Definitely. more or less. Yes. Yeah, it's it certainly looked that way. And Wembley's rough, I think it's rough capacity, because of course this is the old stadium. Yeah. Uh, its rough capacity was, I think, roughly 80,000. I, I don't know that for sure, but I'm sure it was around that. So, And the stadium looked pretty full. I mean, you were there, you could probably it, it tell was, me it, there, more Yeah, about you, that. Couldn't, you couldn't see any spaces at all. And bearing in mind that um, it's usually around... 80,000 just with the, the the seats around the outside of the pitch bearing in mind that you had tens of thousands on the pitch as well around ringside um so i i'm pretty confident that it was well over 80,000 on that on that day yes yeah and the crowds they really were the 12th man in this they were absolute they were on fire i have never heard Virgil gets such a reaction <laughs> as he did. That just shows how rabid the British audience were for wrestling. Didn't matter what it was. It doesn't matter what it was, though. Back in them days, we would have cheered absolutely anything uh, from the WWF. <laughs> but uh, I mean, and that was that was the kind of the golden era of WWF uh, as far as UK were concerned. I mean, I think uh, WWF got popular when Sky started broadcasting it late 80s um, into the early 90s, and then of course they started doing their UK tours around 90. 91. Of course, you had that big uh, Royal Albert Hall show where David Boy Smith won the the Samovar Trophy from that Battle Royal main event, of course. And uh, they obviously capitalised on on the popularity of WWF, not just in the UK but from across Europe, because you had fans that travelled from all over Europe to attend SummerSlam at Wembley, of course. But SummerSlam '92. It was originally intended to take place in Washington, Washington, D.C., uh, but the WWF decided to move the event to Wembley Stadium um, due to the, the company's growing popularity in the U.K. and Europe, as I mentioned, and the possibility of increasing the revenue from that event. Uh, from that event. Um, Shawn Michaels was, was originally booked uh, to win the Intercontinental Championship from Bret Hart, um, had it have taken place in the States, uh, but the storyline was adjusted due to the change of venue, and as a result, the British Bulldog, David Boy Smith, was... Uh, put into that Intercontinental Championship match um, against Bret Hart to main event the show. So quite interesting that, um, and I think there was some uh, financial issues, I think that back in 92, the WWF were um, not doing brilliantly financially. So they decided to capitalise on that. Uh, very, very, you know, exciting and, and rabid and very, very um, popular fan base over in, in the UK. So um, it was it was something that definitely worked for them back in the day. But um, I mean, one of the questions that will come up towards the end of the show, Rob, will be about whether WWE should ever host another big pay-per-view over in the UK again. So we will tackle that subject a bit later on. But uh, very, very interesting as to why they decided to change uh, their mind. And I think tickets only went on sale for SummerSlam 92 in June, bearing in mind that the pay-per-view took place in August. So it was kind of a a bit of a last minute change. But they, uh, you know, took advantage of having Sky on their side and did all some fantastic marketing, got some wrestlers over. I remember the Ultimate Warrior and Hacksaw Jim Duggan uh, being all over the TV screens over the summer, promoting the show. And uh, tickets sold out in, I think, less than five days. Now, WWF would have you believe that they sold out within six hours or certainly day one. Um, but within uh, the first five days, they'd certainly sold well over 65,000 seats. And then in the, the subsequent weeks, they managed to sell out um, all the other tickets. So, uh, very very interesting as far as that was concerned but um let's have a look at the the, the show itself then rob so a few matches that doesn't show on the WWE Network, and I don't think they actually aired in the original pay-per-view. There was a, a couple of dark matches, uh, and that was Tito Santana versus Papa Shango, um, the Bushwhackers, Jim Duggan and the, versus the Nasty Boys and the Mountie. And uh, one match that took place 
quite late on in the card was Tatanka versus the Berserker, but none of them three matches actually featured on the pay-per-view or the uh, or the WWE Network presentation. So was you aware of them, uh, them dark matches um, that I just mentioned? I was aware of the Tatanka one. Um, obviously, that was a, that was uh, actually the semi-main, if you look at the running order of the pay-per-view. Indeed. Um, which is, you know, exactly what you need after The Undertaker versus uh, Kamala. Mm. Um, but I I did think it was strange that the Bushwhackers and the Nasty Boys delivered promos during the show, but yeah. weren't actually there. It seemed a complete waste of time to fly them over from, you know, Stanford, Connecticut to England just to do a promo. But this, of course, makes far more sense. Um, yeah. I don't know how much we'd have missed in a match between the Bushwhackers and the Nasty Boys. Um, not, not an awful lot, that's... to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can imagine. Not exactly known for their in-ring potential, are they, the Nasty Boys and the Bushwhackers? <laughs> yeah, but another interesting thing, I mean, one of the matches uh, that was on the pre-show, the, the, one of the dark matches that didn't air, Tito Santana versus Papa Shango. Now, the plans were originally um, that uh, Papa Shango was going to be going up against Kerry Von Erich, the Texas Tornado. So prior to, uh, and in the build-up to SummerSlam, uh, Kerry Von Erich, the Texas Tornado, actually filmed some promos that were aired to hype up the match against Papa Shango. Um, but then, of course, um, I think uh, Kerry Von Erich was fired um, partway through the build, I think maybe July, um, so not quite into August. Then plans were changed and they inserted Tito Santana. And uh, yeah, so the rest is history. And of course, uh, Kerry Von Erich uh, left the company. And obviously, we know that his life went on a bit of a downward spiral, spiral from there. But um, very interesting that it could have been Kerry Von Erich instead of Tito Santana. And uh, that would have been a, a fun match, I'm sure. But uh, let's go straight into the kind of the, the main card and the opening match on the main card was the Legion of Doom versus Money Incorporated, Money Inc. And uh, now I, I spoke about this briefly during our kind of WrestleMania, uh, WrestleMania 8 retro review, I believe it was, with, with Chris and Nick from Broken But Glorious Wrestling Podcast about Rocco, the, the, the ventriloquist <sighs> dummy of LOD that came down to the ring with Hawk and Animal, as well as longtime manager Paul Ellering. He was strapped to the front of one of them, uh, Harley Davidson's. And uh, uh, I, I don't know if you was aware of this, Rob, but uh, Hawk, left the company um i think this was his last wwf match at the time um i left the company uh, because he was so much against the rocco uh rocco the the, the mascot gimmick uh let's say immediately uh left after some some 92 and neither animal or hawk were seen back in the wwf for uh, four and a half maybe five years 1997 so i mean i i, I thought that uh, taking a very kind of tough team like LOD, the Road Warriors, Arse Kickers, um, and then just giving them a, a mascot in the shape of a ventriloquist dummy really wasn't doing anything for their street cred, to be honest with you. It might have been fine for the, for the kids uh, and for merchandise sales, but um, uh, when you saw Rocco and then, of course, Paul Ellering was doing the, the very poor ventriloquist act at ringside during the match, uh, what, what were your thoughts on that? You must have thought, well, this isn't the LOD that I remember watching from all them years ago. Um, it it's one of those head scratchingly baffling moments um, where you realise that a tag team that clearly Vince adored because he created a Poundland version of them in Demolition and gave them the tag titles for goodness knows how long. Yeah. So he obviously knew who they were, he knew what they were about, but to then, you know, repackaging them for the Road Warriors to Legion of Doom, absolutely fine, didn't do their street yeah. cred, any harm whatsoever, and in the ring they were still utter badasses. You then put them with a ventriloquist dummy. Now, that ventriloquist dummy can be the coolest looking dummy in the world. You can put as much leather and as 
cooler sunglasses as you want on a ventriloquist dummy, but you are not. It just it does not go with that gimmick at all. You've got the Legion of Doom. You heard the eruption of noise as they came down to the ring. On it, it was a road warrior. Not entirely. Pop. It exactly. was a road warrior. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm not entirely sure that Hawk should have been driving a motorcycle if uh, rumors are to be believed about how high he was during this pay per view. But yeah, Rocco is. It's an absolute menace on the Legion of Doom. And to be perfectly honest, if I was either Animal or Hawk, I think I'd have stormed out after this pay-per-view having to strap that dummy around. Yeah, but it makes you wonder, had they not have had that dummy as their mascot, you know, they would have been happy to have stayed with the company for months, if not years, uh, into the future, and what a great uh, career they would have had um, in the WWF, because they only joined the company the the, the, the year prior, uh, in 1991, and we remember them winning the WWF Tag Team titles against Demolition at WrestleMania 7, if I'm not mistaken. Um, mm. But, um, yeah, so uh, a bit of a I'm sure that was um, a, a bit of a uh, an annoyance for Vince McMahon that uh, they, they left. I mean, you're quite right. I mean, Animal uh, revealed years later that, that Hawk had taken drugs before flying over to the UK for SummerSlam and was, uh, you know, he, he, Hawk himself was anticipating a, a failure. Animal didn't know about this at the time, certainly not going into the match, but it was, you know, was more than aware of, of his partner's troubles and, and keeping clean. Um, and he's got a bit of history of drug abuse, of course. And recalls that Vince McMahon wasn't happy with Hawks, um, you know, obvious uh, lethargy, you know, and, and during the match, I think the animal kind of had to uh, control a lot of the match. And uh, Hawk was, I think he nearly fell off uh, the, the top turnbuckle at one point, but um, I think Animal really kind of kept d- d- tight reins on what Hawk was doing during that match. But they did manage to, to catch the win. Uh, they did beat uh, IRS and Ted DiBiase, and I think uh, Animal won following a scoop slam, of course. Um, but uh, it's also reported that, you know, Hawk allegedly skipped out on, on the flight back to the US and began hanging around with some uh, uh, London Hells Angels, uh, a biker gang, of course. And at the TV tapings <laughs> days later, Animal was told that Hawk had quit the promotion and it uh, it was the last time that the team would actually be together, SummerSlam 92, until they reunited in WCW uh, about uh, four years later in, in early 1996. So, uh, yeah, I mean... <sighs> We mentioned about Rocco, you know, that's all history. But, uh, you know, up, up until that point, any thoughts on uh, on LOD's kind of WWF uh, kind of run? And uh, like I say, he started off quite well with that championship win at WrestleMania 7. And uh, I know that um, Hawk was suspended in the early part of 1992, which meant that they didn't feature at WrestleMania 8, of course. And then this was kind of their big triumphant uh, kind of return. For want of a better word, but any thoughts looking back on their early run with the WWF? Um, first things first, if they did Rocker as a marketing stunt, who is buying that dummy? It was the creepiest looking thing. I mean, you wouldn't <laughs> want to buy one. Yeah. Um, I think overall, Hawks, you know, demons, his addictions. I think it did stunt, especially that first run. Um, you know, they were they were billed as such an amazing tag team. They were, you know, you saw wrestling magazines you saw the red you know the red um football pads the spikes and they were so iconic and then they came to the wwf and yes they they won the tag titles yes they won them at wrestlemania yes that moment but apart from that it was very it was almost anticlimactic and i think because vince had already done the demolition thing 
we'd already got used to seeing that sort of tag team, that sort of face-painted tag team. And sure, you know, LOD were hugely over. Again, you know, the LOD pop. And as soon as you hear that, what a rush, it just erupts. So they're clearly over. But it's just, it's the little things. Like the Legion of Doom slash the Road Warriors, however you want to refer to them. They they are over as in the Doomsday device is over. That move is, to my mind, the greatest tag team finisher. He didn't do it here, <laughs> which which just it baffled me. I mean, I don't know whether this was originally planned, and you you mentioned earlier that Hawk looked pretty unsteady on the top rope, and that might have you know that might have led into the finish, you know, changed the finish. But I find it very very strange that you have got LOD opening SummerSlam in front of eighty thousand absolutely rabid British fans, and they don't do the thing that, let's be perfectly honest, the Legion of Doom are mostly known for. Yeah, absolutely. But um, yeah, I mean, it's also reported that, you know, an animal remembers seeing Hawk openly popping uh, sedatives in front of many of the locker room peers uh, before coming to the ring. You know, he, as, as I mentioned, he could barely wrestle that night at Wembley Stadium, let alone ride a bike uh, to the ring, as you mentioned, uh, <laughs> for the entrance. So it's, it's, it's incredible that that match kind of went as smoothly as it did. And it's, it's widely considered to be one of the better matches on the card outside of the two main events. Um, but but, uh, like there we go. quite a distance as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, <laughs> like absolutely. Uh, then we get a backstage promo from Ric Flair. He's with Mean Gene Oakland, of course. Um, and, and Mean Gene is demanded to know who Mr. Perfect, uh, whose corner Mr. Perfect will be in. Uh, during the WWF Championship match between Savage and the Ultimate Warrior, which we'll get into a bit later. Uh, and that's another master piece uh, from not only Ric Flair but also you know uh, Mean Gene he never did a bad backstage segment as far as I was concerned a really fun promo from these two uh, with Ric Flair giving nothing away about which corner Mr Perfect will be in and then we go into uh, a match that uh, is not not very fondly remembered Nails versus Virgil <laughs> uh, so um, two two individuals I don't think I've, I've ever mentioned before on my podcast and these were 125 episodes in but uh, uh, you know we, we, we see Nails easily defeat uh, Virgil, Soul Train Jones, uh, but uh, Virgil back in those days uh, in, in less than four minutes with a bit of a chokehold sleeper. Um, but Nails' his WWF career was, was short-lived as no more than three months later uh, during the December the 14th Superstars tapings. Nails cornered Vince McMahon in his office and is alleged to have screamed at him over his SummerSlam, SummerSlam payoff, feeling that it was too low. Uh, Bret Hart recalls uh, hearing a loud crash from the office, apparently caused by Nails knocking McMahon off of his chair before uh, putting McMahon himself into uh, the very same chokehold that he had Vir- Virgil in uh, during the SummerSlam event. So uh, a host of a Officials quickly broke up the, the altercations and Nails was immediately fired by McMahon. Shortly after, Nails apparently called the police and claimed that Vince McMahon uh, had made a, a sexual pass at him to explain why he assaulted his now uh, former boss. Um, but uh, this, of course, was uh, all a bit of a smokescreen, in many people's opinion, uh, for what he had done to the boss over his SummerSlam payoff. So uh, any any thoughts on, 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 the, on the match, first of all? And then uh, any, any thoughts on kind of Nails as a character? I mean, he's brought in as a, as a, as a bit of a, a feud for the big boss man. He was meant to have been one of uh, boss man's uh, prisoners in uh, Cobb County, Georgia. Um, and uh, but but um, an interesting character. They did eventually have Nails versus his boss man in the big kind of uh, blow off match to their feud in a, a nightstick on a pole match at Survivor Series uh, before the end of the year. And of course, Nails was gone by uh, December the 14th. So uh, any thoughts on this one? 
Um, this was a this was a terrible match. Let's let's make no bones about it. Um, Virgil, Virgil was never great in the ring. Even even with his feud with Ted DiBiase, he had punches, and that's that's it. Here, Nails had one move, and that was the double-handed "I'm going to strangle you" move. Um, in the ring, Virgil, if you're trying to get Nails over, or you know, try and accent nails is very very few positives you need someone good in the ring and unfortunately virgil was not that person um it went three minutes 55 and it felt a good 10 minutes longer than that it was <laughs> it, uh, it, way, it yeah. was not it was not a good match <laughs> at all um the only thing i remember really apart from like say nails having one move and it was sort of stumbling frankenstein like towards his opponent um it was that vince was talking about how it wasn't a sleeper hold, it was a chokehold and him and the brain sort of having that debate whether it was a squat, uh, sorry, a sleeper or a, or a choke. That was the most interesting part of the match, which speaks volumes about how interested I actually was in the in-ring action. Yeah, exactly. But uh, largely forgettable. Uh, but like I say, the, the story that followed it regarding uh, Nails and uh, Vince McMahon's altercation at the Superstars taping in December is definitely one of uh, folklore, um, but uh, very, very interesting there. But uh, And then we go into a match that I was really looking forward to going into uh, SummerSlam, especially as, 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 as a kid looking forward to this. Big fan of, of Shawn Michaels growing up. I enjoyed Rick, the model Martel, and they'd be going up against one another um, at, at SummerSlam 92. Rick, uh, Shawn Michaels, of course, came down with Sherry Martel. Now, as I said, we go into this one. I was, I was already starting to appreciate the kind of the finer side of wrestling, and kind of aside from the silly gimmicks and the silly characters, I, I was kind of more interested in in kind of more the scientific side of wrestling and enjoying a good uh, back and forth match. And that's what I thought I was going to get here between these two. But of course, there was a, uh, a predetermined stipulation set out by Sherry that uh, neither man, being as pretty as they were, could uh, touch one another's face or hit one another's face. Uh, so that was the kind of the the predetermined stipulation going into it. Uh, but like I say, I thought that both of these two very accomplished wrestlers could put on a, a really good match classic, but we didn't get that here, to be honest with you. It turned into a bit of a bit of a farce, a bit of a comedy match, which was a, a bit of a letdown for me, knowing that uh, these two are, are far more capable than what they actually delivered uh, the, that uh, Saturday night um, in, uh, in Wembley. But um, both wrestlers broke the pre-match stipulation by slapping each other uh, across the face uh, with the match ending in a double count out with both men uh, taking turns in trying to carry the unconscious Sherry back to the locker room as well until Martel dumps a bucket of water over Sherry's head much to the, to the delight of uh, 80,000 fans in London that night so any thoughts on this one did you enjoy the match did it uh, deliver in any way in your opinion did you kind of get into the uh, into the gimmick of it all but uh, what are your thoughts on uh, Shawn Michaels versus Rick Martel. Uh, first of all, I think the biggest question is: Did you cheer? Were you one of the people that cheered when she got the bucket of water dunked on her? Of course I did. Of course <laughs> I did. <laughs> um, with the with the stipulation that you weren't allowed to hear each other in the face, it did uh, sort of hamstring them a little bit. Um, I'm with you 100%. I thought this match. You know, you see Shawn Michaels, who of course is one of the all-time greats, and will go on to be world champion, and you know. Not until 1996, I think he got his first championship. He'd go on to be Intercontinental Champion, all this sort of thing. Rick the Model Martel, I think, was quite an underrated performer. He was brilliantly sound in the ring. He was, you know, one of those people, along with people like Tito Santana, who was great in the ring, but never really got above the mid-card. And it's a shame because his gimmick, 
was fantastic. I really yes. enjoyed Agreed. his gimmick of the model, the yeah. arrogant model with, you know, the arrogance. Um, and I thought this match could be fantastic. And unfortunately, it sort of, it became very quickly, very apparent that it wasn't about the in-ring sort of clout of these two men. It was more about the comedy stylings of Sherry. Um, you know, it was very much about, oh, look what Sherry is not wearing. Um, because that was mentioned about about 50 <laughs> times by Vince and by uh, the brain Brian uh, sorry Bobby Heenan had an absolute belter the entire show I thought he was absolutely fantastic on commentary I, I giggled the entire way through this match just at the little ridiculous references he was making um, but yeah it the angle sort of ruined what could have been a very, very, very competent match. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think Michaels and Martel did a good job up until, you know, the farce on the outside. Um, but yeah, it it put a damner on a very, what could have been a good match. Yeah, definitely. But uh, moving on, then we had a, a match for the WWF Tag Team titles. It was uh, Bo and Blake, the Beverly Brothers, uh, accompanied to, to the ring by the Genius, of course, going up against uh, Earthquake and Typhoon, the Natural Disasters. Now, going back to one of my earlier matches on the card, Monique versus Legion of Doom, um, that, that was originally going to be the WWF Tag Title match, believe it or not, but the Natural Disasters, they defeated Monique on a house show in July. It's just a the month prior um, and it was speculated that the WWF management knew that LOD was on their way out of the company uh, so switched the titles on this house show uh, putting the belts on the natural disasters thus changing the tag title match um, to this one instead uh, with the, the Beverly Brothers um, being in contention um, but uh, you know this was a fun match it went 10 minutes I thought it was pretty good for what it was with the Beverly Brothers having the large portion of the offense, thanks largely to their heel tactics. Uh, but once the Typhoon, or formerly known as Tugboat and future Shopmaster, of course, uh, once he got the hot <laughs> tag uh, to Earthquake, the pinfall was forthcoming. Thanks to the earthquake splash, of course. Now, back in the day, I thought the Beverly Brothers were, were pretty good. You know, I, I, I was disappointed thinking back that they didn't actually get a run as WWF tag team champions, to be honest with you. They, they were hard hitting. They were, you know, they had a good, um, cohesive look as a tag team. They had the manager. Uh, they were awesome heels. They had a pretty good finisher as well. I think there's a, a bit of a, a gif or a meme going around on uh, Facebook at the moment of uh, uh, the Beverly Brothers kind of dropping some jobber on their head through their finisher. It's pretty devastating finisher i think they usually kind of uh, uh completed the finisher a lot more tidily than they did in that uh, um, gift that's going around but to great heels a great manager uh, had a great look were really really accomplished wrestlers and they never got a run with the tag I thought this was a good opportunity possibly to switch the titles but uh, uh, WWF keeping it very babyface friendly during this show certainly in this match anyway but uh, any thoughts on this one the uh, the Beverly Brothers versus the natural disasters with the titles on the line of course I was always an enormous fan of Earthquake and John Tenter and yeah. It's he's one of those people that I always look back on and think he could have been much more. Um, you know, he was the perfect heel foil for Hogan in you know the early 90s when he debuted and they had that match, which admittedly wasn't great at SummerSlam night. He was the perfect foil, and I think he could have been a champion and someone that you know Hogan then fought to get the championship. Um, I never rated Tugboat, Typhoon, Shotmaster, I never rated him in the ring, and here it. It, it was very, very slow. I mean, the Beverly Brothers, they tried, bless them. Um, they tried to get a lot of heat 
on uh, on Typhoon, obviously building up to that hot tag for Earthquake. Yes. Um, I just, for what it was, it was fine. I think it went 10 minutes 30. And bearing in mind, this was longer than Sean and Rick just. I feel it went a little bit too long, especially as, you know, a lot of t- um, Typhoon and Earthquake's offense, and Typhoon especially, is literally running into someone. And, you know, that's that's great, you know, for... But, you know, you've got to have a little bit more if you're going to go 10 minutes. Um, for, I completely agree with you. I think the Beverly Brothers were a bit of a wasted talent. Um, I think they could have had quite easily. When you look at tag teams through history that have actually held those championships, and then you look at the Beverly Brothers, who seem to have everything that Vince mm-hmm. McMahon loves in a tag team. You know, they were tall, they were muscular, they were blonde, they were, you know, they were good-looking guys. And Vince seems to love that in his athletes. So it, it seems very strange that they didn't switch the tag belts here. I just, I don't think, you know, the natural disasters were originally formed as heel stables. Yeah, I'm sorry, as a heel tag team. I, yeah. And they lent themselves so much better to being a heel tag team. And I don't know whether it's because of their size or because of their moveset or just because John Tenter was great as a heel. I just, I don't think the dynamic worked here. I don't, like the natural disasters as faces um but yeah overall it was it was a completely inoffensive match it didn't do anything to particularly offend me um i like the beverly brothers i liked earthquake it just went a little bit long for me yeah yeah but um certainly not as bad as virgil versus nails put it that way so uh, so <laughs> something to celebrate i suppose but uh, no is I, that I, how I, we're comparing I, all the matches now comparing absolutely, them to virgil being nails. absolutely <laughs> yes you've got to take it from uh, from zero to uh, uh to, to what we get at the end but um yeah like i say i'm disappointed looking back you know in, i mean before they joined the wwf uh, the, the beverly brothers were the, the minnesota wrecking crew i believe they were and they they had a great run uh, i think in in awa i don't think they featured um, in WCW, but um, we're a fantastic tag team, and I think that their, their gimmick was, was probably a little bit too soft, to be honest with you. They they probably should have come in as I don't know, maybe a, a bit more of a hard ass team. I don't know, more, more of an ass kicker. But but you know, with what they had and, and the genius being their manager, um, I thought that they could have done a lot more with that tag team. And yes, they they had opportunities. They were in uh, tag title matches like this one here, for example example at SummerSlam in Wembley and uh, uh, I'm sure they had many other prominent matches I think they did have uh, a, a run with uh, the Steiners as well and a great feud they have with those but uh, were never quite given you know the the, the, the Duke should we say the you know the win uh, the big win or kind of they never really overcame in any of their feuds so um, more could have been done with it with a talented team like that looking back on it but uh, and I agree with you regarding the natural disasters I think they were um, much more effective they really were you know I, I think that they should should have remained heels to be honest with you you don't have two big guys like that and dress them up as baby faces but uh, um, I, I don't think Vince McMahon really quite knew what to do what knew what to do with that team if I'm honest with you but um, speaking of uh, uh, former tag team partners with tag team partners we had Crush versus the Repo Man now they didn't really uh, position this as a former kind of tag team partner going up against uh, one another, but you of course had Crush versus Reaper Man, and they were of course former Demolition members. Now you mentioned about Demolition uh, earlier, uh, Rob. Um, any, any thoughts on on these two individuals? I mean, I personally was a big fan of Crush. Um, I, I liked him as part of the Demolition stable, but I thought as a baby face, I thought, yeah, he's got the look, he's got the size, he's pretty agile for a big guy, he's got some pretty good moves, um, and I thought 
thought that they were possibly setting up uh, him up as uh, the next big baby face, the next big Hogan, dare I say it. But uh, any thoughts on these two before we get into the match? It seemed for a long time that Crush was going to be positioned as the next big thing. Mm. You know, lots of little story beats that sort of they put him in the ring with Macho Man at um, WrestleMania 10. Yeah. Which is, a you know, it's a prevalent place to be. Yes, it wasn't for the title, but it's against Macho Man at Mania. Um, it just it never seemed to um, it never seemed to materialize. I know that he had his own demons with um, yeah. steroids and things like that. Um, and he was ultimately let go of the, uh, from the company because of that. Um, and I think that probably stunted it in the same way we were talking about Hawk earlier. Um, as for Reed, the fact that this was actually Barry Darso's own idea to package himself as the repo man is just it it baffles me i don't understand where what he thought the ceiling was going to be on that gimmick i don't know whether he thought he'd come in with his little you know his amazing laugh let's let's not joke his laugh is fantastic but coming in as this person who literally repossesses people's property what what did he think was going to be the ceiling of this gimmick did he think he was going to be a champion with this gimmick it ridiculous you're absolutely right though they they never really acknowledge the fact that these two have been in demolition um which is a shame especially as you know they are um one of the most instantly recognizable tag teams in the wwf and obviously have just come off the back of that mammoth title run that we were talking about earlier um there's not a lot to talk about in this match either John. No, no, it's very, very short. I think uh, it only went three or four minutes once again. I mean, going back to when this originally aired, uh, the UK airing of SummerSlam 92 did not show this match, believe it or not. They did air it on the US uh, broadcast, the US pay-per-view, and of course it's here on the network and it was on the VHS uh, version, but it didn't air on the UK version for whatever reason, not sure why. Um, Now, as mentioned, I was a big fan of Crush. I thought he could potentially have been the next big thing, the next uh, Hulk Hogan. He had, he had the look, he had the agility. Uh, I liked his costume, loved his music. His entrance music was was kick-ass. Um, and uh, the, the cranium crusher as his finisher. But uh, I think that's how it ended. Um, I think that's how it ended. And uh, I mean, if you'd heard my uh, WrestleMania 9 retro pay-per-view review with uh, Mike Mad Dog Angus from a few weeks back, we, we mentioned did, yeah. uh, Crush and his match against Doink. And we saw uh, the beginnings of Double Doink there. But uh, here in August 92, I honestly thought that they had uh, something special in the crush, but that, in the, the, the Kona crush, shall we say, but that never quite materialised. But uh, it was fun for what it was, three or four minutes. And uh, Crush, of course, overcame um, in that one. But I, I, I mean, I'm kind of slightly the reverse of yourself. I enjoyed the Reaper Man gimmick. I thought it was a, a pretty good gimmick. Um, he played it very well. He was invested in the gimmick, much like Matt Bourne, who played uh, Doink, the original evil clown. Um, I thought Barry Darso really invested in the Reaper Man gimmick. And uh, um, like I say, well, yeah, there, there is a certain ceiling that you can uh, only go to when you're dressed uh, in, in a, like a, a raccoon mask with uh, tire treads uh, printed <laughs> on your on your trunk, of course, on your tights. Uh, but uh, character wise, yeah, I don't think he was ever going to be world champion, was he? But uh, I thought it was a, a good, memorable gimmick. And to, to the point where he still gets... Um, brought up uh in many podcasts nowadays and um yeah so he had two good gimmicks you could say was he was he axe or uh, or smash of crush i can't remember i believe sorry i i that exact reason because i knew i would have to look at that later he was <laughs> smash yeah <laughs> he was so- smash you know, he pulled off two good gimmicks there um, in Reaper Man and uh, Smash of Demolition. But uh, there we go. And then uh, one of the big talking points of the whole show. And uh, this was kind of not 
this was kind of more than halfway into the show, but Macho Man, Randy Savage, current WWF World Heavyweight Champion going into the match, going up against uh, the Ultimate Warrior. And uh, about, believe it or not, this was actually aired as the main event in the US pay-per-view broadcast of the show two nights later, of course. Um, but uh, they're being live and now watching it on the network. They've got it all in the correct order. It was um, several matches uh, from the top. Um, so what we had uh, Undertaker, the Undertaker match. And of course, we had Tatanka versus Berserker. Uh, but uh, this was um, one half of the double main event, Rob, now. The Ratchet Man, Randy Savage, uh, the, the Ultimate Warrior, here for the WWF Championship, as, as I said, and uh, it was more than a good enough sequel to their epic uh, match that they had at WrestleMania 7. I think when you look at Ultimate Warrior's all-time great matches, of course, his WrestleMania 6 encounter with Hulk Hogan is always remembered as being, you know, quite a good match, uh, considering the participants. Um, and then, you, of course, you had uh, Randy Savage versus the Ultimate Warrior at WrestleMania 7. And then, you know, this one is fondly remembered being a, you know, a very good sequel to that WrestleMania match um, just over 12 months later. But um, uh, this was a pretty good match. I think it was the longest match on the card. Went about 28 minutes, if I'm not mistaken. Now, the storyline going into this was um, Mr. Perfect, who was aligned with Ric Flair, of course, was claiming that he was going to be managing or maybe in the corner of one of the two men, uh, but wouldn't let on or wouldn't say which wrestler he would be in the corner of. And uh, this bred paranoia uh, but between Randy Savage and the Ultimate Warrior, of course, and the idea, you know, the idea that the other one was on the take um, and that they knew that Mr. Perfect was going to be in their corner. But so WWE, you know, WWF at the time was uh, planning on turning the Ultimate Warrior at around this time with the Perfect involved, Mr. Perfect's involvement, steering the, the face painted warrior in that direction. However, the Ultimate Warrior turned the idea down flat and remained the babyface until his firing uh, later on that year in November. So, you know, this was a classic babyface with his babyface match that went 28 minutes. And uh, I remember, you know, what I remember about this match was the, the intensity, uh, the drama of the match between these two wrestlers, the crowd noise, which was immense. Uh, now, of course, the, the match ended, if I'm not mistaken, in a, in a countout. I think Randy Savage got counted out but retained the championship. Um, any thoughts on this one? This one is widely considered to be the second best match on the card. And we'll obviously be talking about the best match on the card very, very soon. But uh, for what it was, it was, it was good. You had the drama on the outside with Ric Flair, Mr. Perfect. Um, and then, of course, a, a very good match between Randy Savage and the Ultimate Warrior. But what was your thoughts on this one when, when you were watching it back down uh, this week then, Rob? just it was such simplistic storytelling and they executed it perfectly that there's always a bit of a problem with um babyface versus babyface title matches because you don't necessarily want one to be more over than the other you've got randy savage who's an incredible worker and is the figurehead of the company you've got warrior who is you know a a fantastic presence and a figurehead of the company. You don't necessarily want people to be booing Warrior and cheering Savage. Now, how would you get around that? You book the simplest of stories and put Ric Flair and Mr. Perfect in it. And it was absolutely fantastic. It worked beautifully. Now, I hate interference in matches unless it, you know, it's subtle and it plays into a storyline later on then I, I just hate it. I think people should be able to do more in a wrestling match without... I feel like it's a little bit of a coward's way out. However, here, I just thought everything worked so well. I think Macho Man had a wonderful way of getting the best out of the Ultimate Warrior, who, let's face it, 
isn't the most apt in the ring. Um, he was not booked to be apt in the ring. He never promised to be anything close in the ring. Um, but here he was, you know, he was doing vertical suplexes. He was doing um, sidewalk slams. He was catching uh, Savage when Savage was coming off the top rope. And Savage made him look really, really good and give Ultimate Warrior his due. He sold the part perfectly. Who knew that something so simple as to go, Mr. Perfect's going to come out, but he's not telling you whose corner he's in. Something as simple as that. It yeah. just it was brilliant. Those mind games we played. Flair played his part absolutely superbly. Um I just I'm I don't know how I feel about Ultimate Warrior's meat tights. Um That was strange. That was very strange, yeah. Yeah. Um <laughs> When you compare that to his, like, you know, he was still brightly coloured. He still got the brightly coloured tassels. He was still doing the running. I mean, he fell up the stairs, yeah. which you saw on the network version, which was really funny. <laughs> um, and, you know, he still had the same intent. He was still the same character. I just, I don't really understand um, the meat tights. Um, but, yeah, overall, this was far better than I thought it was going to be. Um, I think it, it's not quite as good as their Mania 7 match. I mean, you know, their Mania 7 match, it's a retirement match. There's more inherent drama there. But here, I thought they did fantastic with what they had. I thought Ultimate Warrior, who, again, I've just said, you know, you listen to shoot interviews, people will slag off his work rate till the cows come home. Here, he was made to look great. In a 28-minute match, Ultimate Warrior was made to look very, very, very good. And I think Meltzer gave this four stars. Which, you know, the Ultimate Warrior in a Meltzer four-star rated match is, it just wouldn't think it would happen. Um, But yeah, the drama was great, the storytelling was great, and both men, yeah, really, really good. Did you say that this aired as the main event in America? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think they they, they switched the two matches around. Either they had... Bulldog versus Bret Hart as the semi-main and this going on last. But when this aired in the States, they edited it so that this was the very last match on the show. I don't understand how that would work because when Ultimate Warrior came out, yes, the, it was it was getting dark, but it was still quite obviously not. It was still quite obviously light, whereas mm. it was pitch black during Davy Boy during versus Brett. So I'm not entirely sure how that would work, but saying that they did cut out half the matches for the broadcasts anyway. So they did. They did. I mean, my my main disappointment going into this was that Ric Flair wasn't involved in a match. I was the biggest Ric Flair fan, kind of growing up, certainly around this time. Big fan of his. You know, it, when you look at what he accomplished um, in uh, 1992, winning the Rumble, you know, being one half of the main event against uh, Savage at WrestleMania 8, and that was a fantastic match. I was really, really hoping that they would involve or include Ric Flair in a match uh, for some. Slam, so yeah. I can see with my own two eyes uh, in the flesh actually wrestling in the ring. But his involvement on the outside was fine. Um, and uh, big fan of his and, and, and uh, Mr. Perfect's uh, partnership um, at the time. Really, really loved that combo. Um, I thought that they kind of really interacted and, and, and that added to the match, uh, you could say. But it was a good match, good drama, a uh, bit of a flat ending, to be honest with you. You know, if this did go on last in the States when they aired the pay per view two nights later, having a, a, a count out uh ending conclusion to this uh, world title match as the main event uh must have felt a bit flat kind of watching it um in, in the u.s but um 
there we go there we go and then we had what uh, is kind of the semi-main event match you could say um the undertaker versus kamala now the undertaker of course <laughs> came down to the ring on the back of a hearse that was pretty special i thought the entrance of the undertaker was pretty special um kamala came down with uh, harvey Whippleman and kim chi but uh, now this was the era when the undertaker would take on any and all monster heels and uh, whether they was eight foot tall or 300 400 pounds uh, and of course you know during our wrestlemania 9 retro review uh, with uh, mike mad dog angus we covered takers match against giant gonzalez and uh, this match was along the same lines to be honest with you you know it wasn't a great match um it was you know for me about the entrances and about the, the crowd involvement the crowd are really into this uh we saw the undertaker do his, his uh, uh, legendary rope walk but just as he was about to pick kamala up for the tombstone i think kimchi came into the ring the referee called for the bell disqualification Kamala did a couple of splashes. I think he did one from the canvas, one from the second rope, and he even did a splash off the top rope, which was, uh, uh, when I watched it back a couple of days ago, I thought, well, that's, that's amazing for a 300-plus pound man. And uh, Kamala wasn't known for his agility, to be honest with you, but uh, uh, that, that was quite impressive. And then, of course, the Undertaker just sat up. Uh, the uh, Kamala and, uh, and co, they uh, ran off in, in fear as the Undertaker chased them back down uh, the, the aisle, back to the locker rooms. But, um, yeah, you know, he... he it was another short match. I think it went, uh, what, three or four minutes again. It seemed to last longer. Uh, like another match that you mentioned earlier, it seemed to last 10 minutes longer than it actually was. Uh, but it was, it was you know, fun for what it was. The fans at the time, they ate it up. They absolutely loved it. And being there, seeing The Undertaker's entrance, as it was getting dark, coming out on the, on the hearse, um, hearing that gong go off. And then, uh, yeah, I thought it, it was fine as a spectacle. But when you're watching it back this week, Rob, what did you think? A um, couple of things. Uh, the first thing I thought was, my God, who was the Undertaker pissed off between 92 and 95? Because <laughs> a, list, a list of his opponents. So if we start from 1992 and work our way through to WrestleMania 11, the people that he fought were Kamala, uh, Gonzalez, Giant Gonzalez at WrestleMania 9. He also had a feud with Mr. Hughes in between that. I don't know if you remember Mr. Hughes. I do indeed. Um, <laughs> he then went on to fight Yoko Zuna. Um, and then got into a feud with himself at SummerSlam 1994, oh and then went on to fight King Kong Bundy. <laughs> so I don't know who who he'd pissed off, who he'd annoyed, but my God, that run of opponents. When you're looking at that run of opponents and go, Yokozuna's the best opponent there, that's 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 not great. Um, as I wonder how many itself. times I wonder how many times Undertaker considered going to uh, WCW back then because he he, he probably would have thought <laughs> oh, I'm going to get a, a better opponent if I uh, uh, went south but uh, no he stuck at it and uh, you know we're glad that he did and of course his matches got a lot better and uh, certainly as you get into the the, the, the 2000s and the latter 2000s but uh, please carry on with your uh, review of the match. <laughs> well, Bruce. Pritchard on his podcast always says that whenever Undertaker went into the office and they go, oh, I'm not sure about that, Taker, he'd just bring up Giant Gonzalez and the people <laughs> doing the booking would go, oh, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, we did make you get in the ring with Giant Gonzalez. Um, as as for the match, um, I imagine that is why he went on so late so that Taker's entrance was during the yeah. evening or during dusk. Um, Undertaker's entrance was fantastic here. It was the best part of this. The only blessing is that it was it was short um the moment where taker sits up at the end after the kamala beat down which i didn't think i'd ever say kamala beating down the undertaker um yeah 
the moment that he sits up and the entire crowd erupts are just absolutely magical. I mean, when he's getting into the ring to start the match, you can hear the crowd singing along with his theme. And Taker is relatively early on in his WWF run here. You know, he debuted Survivor Series 1990, so he's less than two years into his run. And people are still singing or, you know, chanting his theme as he's entering the ring. The man was iconic less than two years into his run. And how do you treat him? You put him in the ring with a man who's most famous for slapping his belly during the diva search. So, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) not a lot to talk about here, John, unfortunately. Terrible match. Only blessing is that it went less than four minutes. Agreed. Agreed. Well, let's talk about what's widely considered to be one of the best matches in WWF, WWE history, and one of the greatest SummerSlam matches of all time. It was, of course, the main event, the match that went on last, if you were there in in, in the flesh, or if you've watched it back on the network, it uh, obviously didn't go on last if you uh, caught the US uh, pay-per-view airing two nights later. But it was, of course, Bret the Hitman Hart versus the British board of David Boy Smith for the WWF Intercontinental Championship. And, um, you know, had SummerSlam taken place in Washington uh, over in the US, then Bret Hart would likely have dropped the IC title to Shawn Michaels in a ladder match, believe it or not. The, the ladder match that uh, Hart and Michaels ended up having in, in July 1992, that was a bit of a dress rehearsal for what was meant to have been uh, a, a rematch of sorts or um, the first ever official WWF ladder match at SummerSlam 92 um, but uh, you know that was supposed to demonstrate to McMahon uh, what a ladder match was what it looked like and that it could uh, work on a pay-per-view and of course um, the, I think the first proper ladder match we saw was at WrestleMania 10 so uh, a year and a half later as it was what we got was 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 a masterclass in you know two very, very accomplished wrestlers. And uh, one of the most memorable moments of the match for me uh, followed the double knockout spot towards the end of the match. And both men were aligned prone on the canvas. Hart managed to somehow manage to maneuver his leg up and over his brother-in-law's legs, wrapping Bulldog's legs around his before flipping them over and standing up for the sharpshooter, firmly applying his uh, finishing move, of course. And uh, Hart claims that uh, he came up with that spot while laying in bed at 3 a.m. one morning and uh, I had actually woken up his then wife Julie uh, to try it out at 3am in the morning on the bedroom floor um, so that he could kind of do a bit of a dress rehearsal for what he was going to do to the David Boy Smith at SummerSlam you know, and the fact that Brett managed to you know talk his groggy wife into getting out of bed lying on the floor and participating in that impromptu um, you know a testing of the, the sharpshooter uh, you know Definitely uh, shows a lot towards the the patience that she had um, and the the love she had for Brett at the time. But as it turned out, you know, Hart had to do most of the heavy lifting, as we know, during this match. Uh, Brett Hart claims in his book that he would have to, that he tried to reach out to his brother-in-law, David Boy Smith, to map out uh, the biggest match of uh, each man's life at the time. Uh, But Smith would would not return his calls. The hitman uh, didn't cross paths with David Boy Smith until the night before the pay-per-view. And it was there that Smith admitted that he'd spent the weeks uh, but leading up to the match, smoking crack cocaine with his fellow heart-in-law, Jim <laughs> Neidhart. So uh, David Boy Smith was, was not in any fit shape to be going into such a big match. Um, but um, yes, 
Hart sat down with the Bulldog, crafted out the match there and then the night before the show. Uh, but shortly after the bell rang on, on that Saturday night, the Bulldog admitted that he'd forgotten the entire plan. So Hart had to call every single spot the rest of the way through the match essentially babysitting David Boy Smith through what ended up being a true masterpiece with the Bulldog getting the pinfall after 25 minutes, 40 seconds after reversing a sunset flip into a pinning combination to become the new Intercontinental Champion. And it's that clip that's played over and over again with Bret Hart and Diana Smith and David Boy with the Intercontinental Championship and uh, the fireworks going off. And that's how SummerSlam went off the air. But it was a tremendous match. And being there, you know, in Wembley Stadium, it was just uh, the whole match was electric and it, it gripped you. It absolutely gripped you. And even from where I, my vantage point, you could see everything was going on. Everybody was hooked. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was it was so, so gripping, so, so thrilling. And uh, the ending was perfect. Um, but what a match, what a match. And I think Dave Meltzer gave it four and a half stars. I would easily give it five stars, having been there in the flesh and watched it myself. But um, what I also liked is the, the psychology. You know, I, I love the psychology in this match with both men, both wrestlers going into the match as clear baby faces. Um, but with Hart portraying the heel when the match was at its peak to get uh, even more sympathy on the hometown boy. So, Rob, uh, you saw this match for the first time this week. Um, you, you kind of shied away from watching SummerSlam 92 because you didn't want to be disappointed uh, with everybody's hype about the show and the match um, that, that finished it in particular. But having watched it back this week, did it live up to the hype? And did it kind of, uh, how, how did you feel once you saw it? Did, did you feel let down in any way or did it live up to the expectations? Possibly the highest praise I can give this match. Um, as I was watching it, um, I thought, well, I wonder how this match how I would feel about this match in an empty arena setting, you know, how we're watching wrestling today. Yeah. And as I was watching it and I thought, even without the crowd, this match would still be great. Yes. This match, if I was, you know, if I was giving, if I was throwing out Meltzer stars without a crowd, this match would still be four stars. Yes. The crowd made this five stars. This match is damn near perfect. Made even more so by the fact that A, Bulldog hadn't got a single clue what he was doing. Um, he was gassed for most of this match. And you can see there's a horrible spot where I don't know whether he's trying to slam Brett or trying to give him some sort of Samoa but He ends up just dropping Brett into the ropes and sort of leans against it, trying to catch his breath. It's, it's yeah. a terrifying moment. It could have really been a lot more serious for Brett. But even that aside, this match... Was I agree with you completely. It was five stars. I mean, even going back to just before the match, those two promos that um, Davy Boy and Brett gave, the Davy Boy one, Davy Boy has never been great on the microphone, never, ever. Um, yet here, it was it was a good promo. It wasn't fantastic. He stuttered over a few words, but nevertheless, still a good promo. Brett, who again, my only criticism really of Brett is that he had a a lack of personality. He was a he was a personality vacuum. Here, I've never been more invested in Brett. I've never felt like Brett has meant so meant something as much as he did during this interview. He was it was brilliant. I would argue that's one of the best promos Brett Hart has ever cut. Um, the match itself, like I say, Brett is a technical genius. That spot that you mentioned, where he manages to loop his legs round and stand up 
with yeah. Davy Boy in the sharpshooter is just fantastic. The match never dropped pace. In 25 minutes, with a gassed bulldog, this match still went at the right pace. Um, I thought it was good how the stuff with Diana Smith, I thought was great. It didn't take over the match as much as, you know, things like this would later on in the WWF with, you know, the feud between Brett and Owen. Um, This, I thought they just had, they just caught very small picture in picture, just showed her looking mock concerned and then cut back. And I thought that was great. That's all it needed. And the match spoke for itself. You know, talk about simplistic storytelling. We spoke about it in the Warrior versus Savage. This was even simpler. Bulldog wanted to challenge Hart, their family. Right, let's see what it's going to do to our family. It's it's simple storytelling. There's no long, convoluted storylines. It's just simplistic. And the match benefited from that. Of course, it benefited it benefited the match greatly that Bulldog was English. And he came out to what can only be described as a hero's welcome. Um, the roof was lifted off the Wembley Stadium with just unbelievable noise. Um Lennox Lewis came out as well to mm. lead him out, which was he amazing. Um, I wanted to ask you something, by the way. Mm. Can you explain to me the need for the Scottish uh, bagpipe players doing Scotland the Brave? Was that just to get Roddy Piper on the on the broadcast? Or no, yes, we, we because... haven't mentioned that. I believe that that was... Uh... Yeah, Roddy Piper was yeah that that was purely for to get Roddy Piper on the broadcast. That was pretty much it. <laughs> I wasn't sure if it was just because Vince just thought you know Scotland's England, it's the same place. Let's just do Scotland <laughs> the Brave. Um, but yeah, overall, one of the all-time great matches. It's still it, the great testament to it is that it still stands up. Yeah. In today's viewing, where you know we're seeing a five-star match every other week you know, in places like New Japan and things like that. This match, this is what you hold a candle to. This is this is the SummerSlam match that everyone tries to beat. Yes. And it's it's a glowing, glowing sort of indictment of Britain and how much they loved wrestling at the time and how much the golden era of wrestling meant in Britain at the time. It's just a shame that it wouldn't last for much longer because obviously in 1993 with the steroid trial and everything, things would start to go downhill very, very quickly for the WWF. Mm, yeah, but I absolutely loved this. And watching it back this week, it brought back so many fond memories. And, uh, you know, like I say, the, the crowd were the 11th man in this match. And they, you know, they, they, they really, really kind of cheered Davey to, to glory. And um, the place erupted when that three count um, happened. And yeah, it, it was it was a perfect match. Absolutely loved it. It had psychology, it had drama, it had uh, some fantastic wrestling action as well. A great ending, um, and uh, looks like a, a good. I thought Bret Hart just deserves so much credit for how he pieced together this match on the fly. But regardless of whatever plan they had originally. And whatever conversation they had the night before this match, um, as, as we know, Bret Hart did have to kind of walk Davy Boy through the entire match. Um, and, you know, it, you, you couldn't really tell. It was a good match. I thought Davy Boy Smith, although he may not have been fully, you know, in the land of the living before or during this match, um, he, he, besides looking a bit gassed at, at some points, as you rightly mentioned, um, I thought that he played his part well as well. And it was a tremendous champion. Unfortunately, they didn't keep the title on him for too much longer. I think he, he dropped the title 
title to Shawn Michaels uh, later on that uh, later on in in uh, 1992, and um, I think they had a match at Survivor Series 92 as well, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, uh, David Boy could never quite get the better of Shawn Michaels um, throughout their little feud there. But let's get to some listener questions anyway, Rob, uh, because we've had a few and they are kind of uh, interested to know our thoughts on one or two things in relation to SummerSlam 92. First of all, uh, John Scott from uh, WrestleLine he said he must have been there. I've had many conversations with John, but we haven't uh, kind of spoken about SummerSlam 92. So next time I speak to John, we'll have to kind of discuss that. But he says he can remember being there like it was yesterday. And then uh, Ashley Clements, he asks, uh, probably going to be the main question. Uh, do you think that we will get a big pay-per-view back over here in the UK in the future? So we did briefly touch on it at the top of the show then, Rob. I mean, I'm, I'm going to throw it to you first of all. I mean, what's your thoughts on... WWE, not necessarily in the current climate, but, you know, a few years down the line, is there a possibility that we could see a SummerSlam again, maybe a Royal Rumble, dare I say, at WrestleMania? Any thoughts on that? I would love to see a big pay-per-view. I'd love to see any pay-per-view um, in the UK. Here, the re- you know, you had a tailor-made storyline for putting it in England. I mean, they they moved it to England, I think, in May, and the show um, aired in August. And you had that ready-made thing. You had that big British star and the British Bulldog. Yeah. I think at the moment, obviously, we now have Drew. Um, whether that's a big enough thing to move an entire pay-per-view to England, I think it's the perfect time to do it, if yeah. I'm perfectly honest. You know, give Drew a nice long run with the title, have him lose it, have him win it back in England. It makes perfect sense. He's going to prove during this run that he is a top contender. Have him beat someone in England at Wembley Stadium again, why not? In Hampden Park at Scot- in Scotland, why not? You know, you've got that enormous pop just waiting to happen. There's so many people, no matter how bad the current day product is, you are always going to have... You, you announce a pay-per-view in England, the tickets will go within 20 minutes, guaranteed. If it's a mania, five. Yeah. People in this country just want to see wrestling. And that's, I mean... The me and the Pomania lads went. We've been to both the UK takeovers in Blackpool, and the tickets went within 10 minutes. And that's for an NXT UK takeover in Blackpool in January. It's yeah. freezing in Blackpool in January. I don't know if anyone's ever been. It's absolutely <coughs> freezing. Um, it's like a ghost town, but it was it was incredible. That just goes to show the British love of wrestling. <sighs> There's lots of contributing factors. You know the time delay. Um, airing it to the US, um, things like that. I just, I don't know. I, I can't give a definitive answer. Would I want one? Absolutely. God, yes. Do I think there'll be one? I'm maybe 60, 40 towards a yes. Will it be a WrestleMania? No, I don't think it'll be anything as big as that. Yeah. Uh, now that they've made a big star of Drew, you know, over the next year or two, they'd, they'd be uh, fools not to capitalise on that uh, with with the UK tour, dare I say it, possibly a bigger show than that. Maybe putting on, maybe not a WrestleMania, but but bringing us you know, a, a Royal Rumble um, or, or maybe a SummerSlam back to Wembley, Handon Park. Why not? Um but yes, I mean, them tickets would sell like hotcakes, to be honest with you. And uh, I think they got an opportunity to really 
push and promote Drew as the next British hero, as the next British bulldog, dare I say it. Um, but uh, they've got something quite special there. And especially if they want to capitalize on the on the new deal with BT Sports um, and, you know, the, the popularity of, of pro wrestling over in the, in the UK and Europe is still very much so. It's still very, you know, definitely there, although fans have kind of called off quite a bit on the WWE product. Uh, the appetite for pro wrestling, um, especially with a brand so, such as the WWE, if they were to come over here for a big show, would definitely be there. Um, I mean, I have read that the reason why they haven't put a WrestleMania on over here in the UK is is possibly because of financials as well. I know that a lot of cities over in the States, they actually bid to have WrestleMania uh, take place in, in their town, in their, in their state, in their city. Um, and that, uh, you know, UK or London wouldn't be prepared to uh, bid for a sporting event like that. Um, so, you know, that it could come down to, to dollars and cents. But um when you listen to Triple H interviews, you know, he always, you know, treads the line very, very carefully. But I know listening to, to Triple H's and words and reading between the lines that he can see the benefits of possibly having a European pay-per-view or a, a UK pay-per-view. Um, and the, the audience is there. The appetite is there. He's been over to the UK doing the UK takeovers. I've been to a couple myself, the one in Cardiff last August, and I was there in Blackpool this January as well, Rob. And uh, yes, it was bloody cold. It was freezing. <laughs> it was absolutely bitter walking. Uh, first, we were walked from the, the venue to a restaurant and then back to our hotel. And uh, boy, we, you know, we glad to get inside. But um, but yeah, I think Triple, I think yeah. I think Triple H has got the appetite to do something outside of North America. He can see the appeal and he can see, you know, the potential in doing something like that. Um, but then, you know, Triple H um, is kind of not the last person in line when it comes to making the decisions. But you know, Vince McMahon, you know, if he's reminded, and, and, and we've the British Bulldog hopefully going into the Hall of Fame um, at SummerSlam or sometime this year was due to be going in over WrestleMania weekend. It will remind everybody, including Vince McMahon, of what a fantastic occasion SummerSlam 92 was and what a, a, a momentous occasion it was for UK wrestling fans, for fans of the British Bulldog, for the, the family of, of uh, you know, the, the Hearts and uh, the Smiths at the time. Um, and, you know, hopefully... That might kind of rekindle fond memories of Vincent Mann and make him consider possibly putting a big pay-per-view over here in the UK sometime in the future. I think it's got to happen eventually. It's got to happen eventually. Um, well, as well, don't forget, we are approaching 30-year anniversary of this show. 2022 marks yeah, the 30th yeah. anniversary of the show. What a wonderful fairy tale to come back 30 years later and do the same show at Wembley again. And we all know. <laughs> how much Vince is a sucker for, you know, an anniversary or yeah. a tagline. You know, look at the WrestleMania 20, which was all grown up, or was that WrestleMania 20? It was one of those WrestleManias. It was an yeah. awful tagline. But you can just see them, you know, 30 years on or something like that. And you can almost see now the stare-off between Brett and, uh, Brett and uh, Davey Boy. And it's sort of, you know, fizzling out into Drew staring off with, I don't know, Brock. Or something like that. You can really see sure. that, and you can see them already. You can already see the sort of the graphics that would go along with that. I think yeah. that will be a perfect opportunity to do it. 
Definitely, definitely. Let's move on to the next question then from uh, Rob Mark. And uh, he asks, with uh, Brett and Dave Will Smith being classed as one of the all-time greats, what is the best SummerSlam match in your opinion? So I kind of had a little think about this and I've created a bit of a bit of a list. Um, but, you know, you've obviously got Bret Hart versus Mr. Perfect from SummerSlam 91. A really fantastic match between two uh, technical wizards, you could say. Uh, the Rock versus uh, Brock Lesnar from 2002. Um, even Shawn Michaels versus Razor Ramon in their kind of ladder match rematch uh, from WrestleMania 10 that took place at SummerSlam 95. But for me, I think... <sighs> The best SummerSlam match was, of course, Bret Hart versus David Boy Smith. But if I were to choose uh, a close second to that, it would have to be Daniel Bryan versus John Cena for the WWF uh, WWE Championship um, at SummerSlam 2013. Absolutely loved that. Um, loved the fact that Daniel Bryan um, was a was a class as a, a bit of an equal to John Cena during the match and actually won the match. And then, of course, we had the, the horrible kind of moment where uh, Triple H was the referee and uh, turned on Daniel Bryan and Randy Orton came in and cashed in and uh, took the title away from Bryan. But um, Rob, what about yourself? If, if it had to be another match other than Davey Boy and Bret Hart, what would you choose as uh, your, your favourite uh, SummerSlam match? I mean, there's the more you think about it, the more that you realise there are some fantastic matches. I mean, mm. SummerSlam is often seen as you know, the red-headed stepchild of the big four, it's often sort of scooted away under the carpet because it hasn't got the stipulation that the Royal Rumble has or even the Survivor Series has now. Um, but you look at the match, I mean, this obviously is, it's got to be top three, if not number one. But, yeah. you know, there's Shawn Michaels versus Triple H from 2002. I thought that was absolutely unbelievable. Yeah, street fight. Yeah. yeah, absolutely amazing. Even Shawn wrestling in jeans, absolutely fantastic. The fact that, that was Shawn's first match back in goodness knows how long and the yeah. fact that it led to the run that it led to you know it led to those fantastic matches with the undertaker and so on i thought that was amazing uh, mysterio versus kurt angle from the same yeah. show one of the greatest SummerSlam openers um and then owen versus brett the steel cage match from 1994 yeah. um yeah. if ever there was a one match show it certainly was SummerSlam 1994 um but that was Another absolutely sensational story told by Bret Hart. And I think if we've learned anything from this show, it's that Bret Hart can... He, there's a reason he's called the excellence of execution. And I think he's proved it over over this show, certainly managing to call one of the greatest matches in history, effectively on the fly with his coked-up brother-in-law. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I mean, some of the matches I had on my list, some notable mentions. You, you had the first of a TLC match at a SummerSlam as well, remember? Uh, the Hardys versus the Dudleys versus Edge and Christian at Summer, uh, SummerSlam 2000. You had Brock versus CM Punk in that no disqualification masterpiece, um, SummerSlam uh, 2013. So the 2013 SummerSlam was, was excellent with Brock and CM Punk, and then Daniel Bryan versus John Cena, of course. You mentioned about the Triple H Shawn Michaels street fight. So, yeah, I mean, there's easily a dozen or more um, classic four, four and a half, five star matches that you can go out and watch. Um, but uh, before you do, switch on the network, watch SummerSlam 92, watch that main event and just be prepared to be, you know, have your socks blown off by the masterpiece that's put together by Bret Hart. And of course, that's a uh, very memorable ending with David Boy Smith as the new Intercontinental Champion. But uh, uh, what, what would be your kind of overall thoughts of SummerSlam 92? What were some of the biggest takeaway moments uh, for you, Rob, from the show? Um, 
matches that I would I'd absolutely recommend you go and watch. Um, and that, of course, is the main event that we've spoken about. And I also thought the Randy Savage versus Ultimate Warrior match was fantastic. I actually enjoyed it, like I said before, a lot more than I originally thought I would. I'm not Ultimate Warrior's biggest fan in ring, and that's, you know, but this was this was great. And it was a simple story, a story you don't need any background to. It's all done very, very well throughout the pay-per-view. Other than that, um, there are matches that quite... That might qualify for WWF's worst ever. Um, I mean, the Virgil versus Nails one, which we've referenced a couple of times on this uh, on this podcast, is just the. How can I put it nicely? It's 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 the drizzling shits. It's it's awful. Um, and then the Undertaker versus Kamala match, dreadful. You do not need to go out and see that. Maybe maybe turn it on for his for his entrance, but apart from that, avoid it like the plague. Um, but yeah, it's it's a two match show. But good God, those two matches are worth it. Mm, for me, it, it's the entrances. I think that uh, all of the entrances delivered because of being, being in Wembley Stadium and you know the, the grandeur of it all. And especially when you look at The Undertaker's entrance, for example, or Shawn Michaels' entrance, LOD's entrance, regardless of whether Rocco is strapped to the front of one of the bikes or not. Uh, uh, but, but the entrances were absolutely fantastic. And I think that um, going back to, you know, uh, one of the questions that we were asked about hosting a, a future WWE pay-per-view over in the UK, that, that's what you get. You, you get the, the, the Rawkers fans, 80,000 of them, potentially at Wembley Stadium, and the entrances will be phenomenal uh, because of, you know, just the pop that they're going to get. Um, but uh, loved all of that. Um, I, I enjoyed aspects of certain matches. I enjoyed aspects of the Shawn Michaels Rick Martel match. I enjoyed aspects of the Beverly Brothers versus an actual disasters because it was nice to see the Beverly Brothers in a featured match on a big pay per view like this. Um, I, I thought the Undertaker versus Kamala match was better than I remembered, believe it or not. Um, I know you weren't a fan of it, but I, I kind of, I, I, I kind of looking back, it, it's like the Undertaker versus Giant Gonzalez when I watched it back the other week with Mike, and I thought, hmm, okay, not not as bad as I remember. But uh, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe my mind is just changing uh, as, as I kind of headed to the forties. But um, yeah, so you know, there are some bits that, that I remember better watching it back with a fresh pair of eyes now than uh, than twenty twenty eight years ago. But um, yeah, it, it's still a very very memorable show. And um, you've also got to think, you know, the, the commentary duo of, of Vince McMahon and Bobby Heenan. You know, there were some classic lines that came out during the broadcast, and uh, Bobby Heenan, as always, is is golden on commentary. But um, yeah, it was it was a good show. But like you say, the two matches that stand out were the WWF Championship match and the main event for the Intercontinental title. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, really just a, a two-match show. But that that Intercontinental title match, um, I think whenever anybody mentions SummerSlam, their mind automatically goes back to that match nine times out of ten. We mentioned we, it was a, a big list of, of matches that we just uh, read off that could be the, the greatest SummerSlam match of all time. Uh, but in my opinion, Bret Hart versus David Boy Smith is the best SummerSlam match of all time. Uh, yes, I might be biased because I was there. I absolutely loved it, um, but uh, I think that, that you'd be hard pressed to find a wrestling fan that would, uh, you know, disagree with me or, like you say, possibly not have it in the top uh, two or three at the very, very least. But um, yeah, Rob, it was uh, 
incredible speaking to you here on the wrestling with john's podcast fantastic to have you on uh, eventually finally and uh, we spoke about uh, SummerSlam 92 one of my uh, favorite uh, pay-per-views of all time uh, but before we say goodbye to you uh, first of all i want to thank you and uh, give you an opportunity to throw out any plugs any social media uh, handles you have for, for twitter facebook instagram wherever we can find you reach out to you say hi and uh, learn more about uh, podmania and all the good things that you guys do so uh, your opportunity to throw out some plugs sir Oh, well, thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure, John. Um, so you can find us um, on the website, www.podmania.co.uk. We've got all our podcasts archived there, whether it's Wrestling with uh, Wrestling with Johnners, whether it's the Podmania podcast, whether it's, you know, our Young Lion cast, where we do a fortnightly um, YouTube and Pro Wrestling podcast, whether it's the Stardom cast that we do monthly. Um, it's also got our match rating archive, where we rate all the matches. You can see ratings from all sorts of classic matches including most of the wrestlemanias i believe now um you can talk to us on twitter at podmania subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts apple podcasts google um castbox we're stitcher we're there we're everywhere to be perfectly honest um twitter at podmania like i say facebook at podmania podcasts um and you can also subscribe to us on youtube um at the real podmania i think that's everything. I could yeah. be wrong, but... We'll, not, we'll try fine. to get some of those links in the description to this episode. So if you are interested to learn more about Podmania and uh, say hi to Rob and the guys and to listen to all of their fantastic content. And of course, we're, we're part of their network as well. Uh, then uh, just click into the description of this episode and click on the links and uh, go and say hi and uh, like and subscribe and uh, listen to all their great stuff. But uh, Rob, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today and uh, reliving SummerSlam 92. And uh, I always enjoyed doing these uh, retro pay-per-view reviews and uh, I, I never thought that I'll be doing uh, a SummerSlam 92 review uh, this you know um, so, so uh, this time um, but um, it's been a pleasure speaking to you and thank you sir no problem at all thank you for having me I hope we can do this again soon most definitely so uh, there we go please keep it tuned to the wrestling with john's podcast and if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast please don't forget to spread the word tell your friends and tell your family don't forget to hit that ever important subscribe button so that you can be notified every time a new episode drops uh, once again thank you to rob for coming on the wrestling with john's podcast thanks to everybody for listening have yourself a great weekend and a great week and we'll catch up with you all again soon